0: showing favoritism you guys don't get suckers okay i can't do the whole service like that well i hope you have had a great week this week i'm so glad that you're back if you're a visitor with us we're glad that you are here Um, and we hope that you've had an opportunity to worship with us and have enjoyed that we would love melissa and i'll be in the back um, after service and we would love to put a name with a face so we hope that you'll take the opportunity to do that We've been speaking the last couple of weeks um, about James, and we've been in that book as we've um, traced his thought um, through that, and so we're going to be back in James. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, if you want to go ahead and begin to turn there. We're so glad to have some folks back with us um, that have been traveling, and so uh, make sure you say hello to them, Um, and so we're glad that God brought them back safely to us. We've been talking these last couple weeks, though, about how James looks at us and really meets us where we're at and really is pretty forceful with us in saying, do you actually believe, do you actually act out what you say you believe? And he pulls no punches as he comes right at us by the way of the Holy Spirit to say, if you have truly been born again. If the Word of God has come into your heart and transformed you, then there should be an outward sign, there should be an outward action that portrays that. And so as we've gone through this, we begin to see how that is possible. We've seen that in looking at our trials and how when we focus on God and we understand what He has done for us and what He is continuing to do in us, that we can face those trials through joy. We looked last week at our own actions, how if we do not allow God to replace the sin that is inside of us with the implanted word of God, that we will never be able to do kingdom work the way that he intended us to. And this week, James turns our attention towards favoritism and towards partiality. Um, But before we get there, I've been kind of giving us a little bit of context about the book, and so I want to continue that before we get into the rest of the sermon. We've looked at how James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the likely author of this. Um, And then last week we talked about how the book has been misused and maligned because at times people and teachers have taken it out of context um, to, to say that somehow we can earn our salvation, that our works, somehow bring about grace upon us but that's not what James is saying at all what James like I said earlier what James is saying is that if the work of grace has happened in your life if you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior through faith that it is inevitable that your works will be a testimony to that that your what how you act and how you speak will be evidence of that change that has happened inside of you this week I wanted to point out something really that I have found very interesting as I've done um, my preparation for these sermons. And I've titled this slide, James the Preacher. Because in James we see a couple of things. First, we see references to Jesus' teaching throughout the book. In fact, most of James's themes that he goes from, from spot to spot, come from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, And as we go through the rest of this series, I hope that I'll be able to point some of those out, um, though we won't have time to, to look back at all of them. But I hope that you'll begin to see some of those connections. In fact, it may be worth your time. In fact, I know it'll be worth your time to go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 so that you can identify those things and then make the connection. The other thing that we see, we'll be reminded that this was largely for a Jewish audience because the early church was largely made up of Jews. Um, that had come to know Christ as their Savior. And so in in the book of James, which is 108 verses, there are 22 Old Testament books referenced, either by direct quote or allusion. And I just find it amazing, as we read through this book, all of those connections, because what James is doing here for his audience is really the work of a preacher. It's the work of a pastor. It is to take the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ and to unfold them and unpack them in a way that can be applied to their life, that can be applied to their culture, so that they may be transformed and then respond appropriately to what God is telling them. And that is at the heart of what, what, what my job is. It's to take the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit to unpack it So that we as a people, we as a church, can see what God desires of us, how we relate to Him, how we are to worship Him, how we are to serve Him, and then through the Holy Spirit for that to transform us so that we can be salt and light to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And so as I go through my week, as I think about what are my priorities, this has to be a priority for me. Taking the time to study and pour over and pray over the word of God that he might do something with it in our lives. That he may use a dull instrument like me to perform exact surgery on the hearts of his sons and daughters. That is what I must focus on. And I must spend time there. And if I do not do that, if I fail you in this aspect, if I fail my Lord and Savior in this aspect, then I've I have really fallen on my face in terms of what i have been called to do here and so i'm so appreciative of james and the example that he shows me as he takes the old testament he relates it to the teachings of christ and then begins to lay out for us as believers how we are to respond in light of the gospel and in light of the new covenant so that we may be salt and light all right hopefully that's the sermon number one hopefully you've had time to find chapter two one through three Um, If you have, then would you please join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's Word. Sorry, we're not 1 through 3, we're 1 through 13. Chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to want to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5. Listen, my bro- beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy or judgment with is without mercy to the to one who has shown no mercy mercy triumphs over judgment Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. And Lord, we are so thankful for the many blessings that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for um, this beautiful weather that we've had. We thank you for family and for friends and the opportunities that we've had to gather with them. Lord, we thank you for how you continue to provide for us. Lord, we stand here this morning before your word, and we just pray that you would make it a mirror to our souls. Lord, that we would see inside of ourselves that which you see, that we would see inside of ourselves those things that ought not to be there, and that we would allow you to remove them. Father, I pray, Lord, this morning, Lord, I'm I'm nothing. Lord, I, I'm not naturally talented speaker. Lord, I, I my thoughts fall far short of heavenly thoughts. But Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to speak into our hearts to transform us in a way that only you can. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I think I've In fact, I know that I've told this story before or shared this before with you, but I I feel like it it really fits in with what we're talking about this morning. When I got to Madagascar, it was not very long before God began to draw my heart to a group of people um, that at the time no one else was really making an attempt to minister to. This people were a group of immigrants, many of them were second generation immigrants from Pakistan, India. In that area, they but they had come in, and because they were um, entrepreneurial, they very much invested in business. Um, whereas Malagasy people tended to be more laid back and not want things to change, these folks were all about investing, um, trying new ideas, and many times those ideas worked out. And so it was not uncommon for most of the businesses you walked into to be owned by this particular group of people or for us as we began to talk with landowners and and renters that they owned most of the houses. But Malagasy people resented them. They resented them because they felt that they had stolen all their wealth. They resented them because they held such power and sway over the government. They resented them as immigrants. And they resented them because they were Muslims. This people was called the Qur'an, And as I began to share with my brothers in Christ, many of whom were pastors, about my desire, about the, the weight that God had put on my heart to reach the Qur'an, understanding that if God did a work among them, that it would trickle down, that the effect would be nationwide. As I began to share my heart in that, I got one of three responses. The first response was the best response I could hope for, and that was, oh, I'd never thought of them. And I would have Malagasy pastors tell me that it never crossed their mind to take the gospel, but they thought it was a relatively good idea, and they promised to pray for me as I went and did that. Sound familiar? The second response was the most common response, and it would probably be the most common response if I talked to people here about this as well but it, the response was, you're going to get yourself killed. There was innate fear of Corona because they were Muslim. And so these Malagasy pastors once again said, I'm so glad that God has put that on your heart. Go forth, my brother, be blessed. I will pray for you as you go. The third one, though, was the one that broke my heart. The third response I got more often than I would like to share. And the third response was, they don't deserve the gospel. Don't dare. There was such hatred. There was such favoritism. There was such prejudice against this people that my brothers, my pastor friends, among the Malagasy people said, don't go to them. They don't deserve the gospel. And in saying that, they were saying, they deserve help let that sink in for a moment that's where these guys had gotten to they had allowed their own favoritism they had allowed what is inside of all of us this desire to be safe this desire for whatever is going to benefit us to take priority to so overcome them to so overwhelmed even their theology that they were blinded by it to the point that they were saying that people deserve help and not the gospel, not hope not life and I'm so glad that I can share now looking back on it as I've kept touch with some of those guys that God has done an amazing work in most of their lives where he has convicted them of that and now many of them are are active in trying to reach Muslims for the gospel in Madagascar. And it's an incredible thing that God has done there. But before we go too far, because it's easy to hear a story like that and for us to laugh at it and then for us to be brokenhearted about it and go, oh, I can't believe those guys. We must look at the word of God and look at James. And hold it up as a mirror to our own souls, our own insights, and say, "Is that present in me as well?" And the truth is, as I said before, that it is innate in us that we have the desire for safety, that we have a desire for that which only benefits us. And the sad truth is, is that we oftentimes allow that to go too far, and we allow it to seep into our ministry. We allow it to seep into our life to the point where we show partiality and favoritism to everyone we come into contact with, whether we realize it on a a level of consciousness or not. And we look at the ministries of our church. We look at our own evangelism, our own personal lives, and we can see in that that we too have shown partiality that we too have said, I'm not going to cross that railroad track. I'm not going to cross that street. I'm not going to do ministry with that child, or I'm going to avoid that family. I'm not going to stop in the street to talk to that person because they're doing something that may be iffy. Because I don't want that to affect me. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to be put in a situation that's uncomfortable. I don't want to be implicit, put in a situation that may be even slightly unsafe. And I just don't see how that benefits me. And when we get to that point as a believer, when we get to that point as a church, and James says we have gone astray, we have fallen away from what Christ would have us to do. And so the question that drives us this morning, last three weeks, or last two weeks, we've asked, A question that drives us through the passage that we're looking at. The first week was, how does God transform our trials? Last week it was, how does God transform our actions? And this week we're going to be asking the question, how does God transform that partiality, that favoritism that lies inside each one of us? The first way that I believe that that is transformed, that God does a work in our life, is when we understand our place. Look at how James starts this chapter in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality. Your, your translation may say, say show no favoritism. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James here stops everything and brings us back and focuses us on Jesus Christ himself, and focuses not only on just any random aspect of Christ, but rather he focuses on the glory of Christ. He brings us into the very throne room of God and has us stare upon the King of kings, the creator of all things, and all of his righteousness. And he says, show no partiality. Because James knows and James wants us to understand that when we are in the throne room of God and before Jesus Christ and focus on Him, that there can be no partiality in our hearts because we understand that all of us are on level ground. That when we see the wealth of Christ, when we see the title that He can claim in all righteousness, when we see His holiness, that everything else that we use as a measuring stick for how we judge people goes out the window. That no title we can claim, no wealth that we can lay hold of, no position of power or influence or sway that we may desire or that we desire in other people can measure up or stand a chance in the presence of God. And so we ourselves and our own thoughts and our own desires are transformed when we are before a holy God and we realize who we are. Second, we understand our place in that we understand that favoritism cannot exist in the church. And James goes on there in verse 2 through verse 7 to give us an example of this in how we treat those who come into our church who have different economic statuses. This is an example. This is not the only way we show partiality we certainly judge people and show favoritism on a wide range of things whether it be the color of their skin the religion their socio status their economic status as the example here but James says when you see someone come into your church and they're clothed well they're wearing all the right things and they very obviously are people of some resource you must not you not show favoritism towards them and then look at someone who walks in who is clothed less well, doesn't have the name brand, is shabby looking. we all understand that term and at the and sacrifice our ministry towards them so we may serve this other person. That has no place in the church. And many of us would sit here, and and I did this as well when I first read this verse. I'm like, we don't do that. We don't do that. If somebody walks in, we all greet them. We all smile. We say, hey, sit wherever you would like just as long as it's not my spot. Do whatever you want. We're happy you're here. But in reality, when they join the church, what goes through our minds? When someone joins the church and they have that title or they have that position or they have those resources and what goes through our mind is, oh, man, they're really going to benefit us. They're going to be a great addition to our family here at FBC. And then when somebody else joins our church that maybe they don't have those resources or they don't have that title or they don't have that influence, and we go, oh, well, I'm glad they're here. you see the difference between those two responses? It's subtle. It's not an outward, oh, we like this person more than we like this person. It's a very subtle, oh, they can benefit us. They're going to be great. Oh, we're glad they're here. That's partiality. That's where it begins. And that seeps into the little cracks in our lives, and it, and it invades every part of who we are, before and before we realize it, we are not being involved in a ministry or we're not sharing the gospel with a person or we're not even recognizing that that person is there because it doesn't benefit us because it might be uncomfortable for us. James says that has no place in the kingdom. That has no place in the church. He goes on to share with us how else are we transformed. We're transformed by understanding our place before a holy God. We understand and are transformed, our favoritism is transformed when we understand that favoritism has no place in the church because we have all been saved, because we are all part of one family. We also are transformed, and our favoritism is replaced by something better when we understand the seriousness of the sin that we are committing. James says there in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Favoritism clearly breaks the commandment of Christ. If you look back with me at Luke 10, really quick, I want to show you something that, that struck me this week. Luke 10, we're going to look at We're going to look here at the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I don't want to so much focus on the parable. I want to focus on what brings this parable on. There in ch- chapter 10, verse 25 of Luke, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So Jesus answers this man's question. But then this is the kicker statement in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable of the Samaritan and helps that man to understand that everyone is your neighbor, that anyone you come into contact is with your neighbor. But the point, the the verse, the statement that I want us to focus on really quick, just just to brush upon, is that statement, and to justify himself. You see, this is how often we look at the Word of God. We see it, we're convicted by it, and our immediate response is, but how far does that really go? Peter does the same thing. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, he asks him what question? How many times? Okay, Jesus, I understand you want me to forgive people, but let's face it, we all have people in our lives that just do stupid things over and over and over again. And you know what? By the fourth time, I really don't want to forgive them anymore. And Jesus tells them, no, you got to forgive him everything. But we all do this, don't we? We all look at the Word of God. We all inspect it. We see what it says to our hearts, and we immediately say, how can I get out of that? And that's what this man here is saying. He says, okay, you want me to love my neighbor? I understand that. Who's my neighbor? Because it's really easy for me to love the people that are like me. Uh, It's really easy for me to love the people in this church. It's really easy for me to love my next-door neighbor. It's really easy for me to love my family. It's really easy for me to love my best friends, these people that surround me that will love me back that will care for me, and you know what, This is, and we've talked about this early on, but the people that if I invite them over and they come to my house and I feed them, you know what, it's not that big a loss because in a couple of weeks they're going to invite me over to their house and they're going to feed me. That's easy. That kind of neighbor I can love. So who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells them, your neighbor is the person that's not going to repay you. The Samaritan picks up this man who should have been his enemy, puts him on his own mode of transportation, walks him to the nearest place that could care for him, not only pays for his bill, but leaves extra money just in case there's more bill to come, and then says, hey, by the way, if anything else happens to this guy, if he needs anything else, I'll be back to pay that too. And this guy should have been an enemy. Should have been someone that he despised. Is that the love that we show? Is that how we view people? That we see broken people, that we see people that are in spiritual need. We see people that are in physical need, and we look at them, and we don't ask the question, is that really my neighbor, or is that just the guy? I don't don't see him. I don't know him. It looks like if I get involved, that's going to take too much effort. That's going to take me places I don't want to go. So that that's not my neighbor. That can't be what it is. Or do we look at that person and see someone that was created in the image of God? Someone who, like us, is desperately in need of the gospel. Someone who is desperately in need of knowing that God loves them and say, okay, I'm going to get involved. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to take. I know it's probably not going to be pretty but it's what I've been called to do. It's what I've been commanded to do. James goes on here, he calls that the royal, he calls that the royal scripture. Let me get back to James. The royal law, because it was given by our king himself. And not only does he say it's breaking a commandment of Christ, but then he goes on to help us to understand that when we break that commandment, when we break one thing, that we break the entire law, and he reminds us there what Jesus said himself of a a statement and a teaching that Jesus says. He says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been accountable for all of it. We understand and are transformed when we understand the seriousness of the sin of partiality. Because when we sin, even in one area, even in one spot, then what happens is we have broken the whole law and we are able, we are convicted automatically that we face a judgment. That we should owe the consequence of that action. And that consequence is death and death eternal. Why, why should we worry about this? Why should we allow God to transform this inside of us? Why should we be running to the altar to confess this sin in our lives? Because we understand that if we have even sinned just a little in this point, that we have broken the law, that we have stained the robes of righteousness that God has given us. And it is a serious, serious thing. God ask us to repent of it, and allow Him to transform that in our lives. Lastly, we we have familiarity and prejudice, and we allow God to God transforms it. We allow God to transform it. Come into our lives and act, because we understand our place in the kingdom of God, because we understand the seriousness of that sin, and because we understand mercy. What? replaces that desire. We talked about this last week, that our own desires are what cause us to chase after sin. And the only way to get rid of that is to allow God to remove those desires and then put inside of us the implanted word of God, the Holy Spirit, which then transforms who we are as people and drives us to act in a manner according to the name which we are called, Christian. Sons and daughters of God. So what replaces that Favoritism. What, what needs to replace that prejudice? It is the mercy of God that we have experienced. We have been shown great mercy. James says here in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You have been shown such grace. You have been shown such mercy. You have been given a gift that you could not have earned. James says that in light of that that your speech and your actions towards other people should reflect that. Jesus gives us a great example in Matthew 18. You can flip over there if you like. I'm just going to paraphrase the parable that he tells there cuz we're running a little short. But in Matthew 18 towards the end of that chapter, Jesus tells this parable There's a Lord, a master, who is settling accounts with those that owe him money. And this man comes to him, and this man owes a debt that is unpayable. It would be lifetime's worth of money in order for him to be able to give back to this master which he owes him. And he gets on his knees and he begs the master, please, I will repay you everything. Please just spare my life. This guy can't repay it. He is lying. When he gets on his knees and says, I'll pay you everything, he knows in his heart that is not possible. And the master knows it as well. And yet the master does something remarkable here. The master looks at this man and says, you know what? It's forgiven says it's okay go on your way it's all taken care of and so this guy gets up this guy should be filled with joy this guy should be filled with relief he has just been forgiven a debt that he never could have paid he can live his life dramatically different think about when you get done with a car payment and you're like, man, what can I do with that money every month now instead of sending it to the bank? Or you think about a house payment and you've paid off that house and you're like, man, now I'm in freedom. Like now nothing can constrain me. I can sell this thing and buy another one and a new payment. But anyway, that's what this guy should be feeling. He should be feeling just this sense of freedom and of weight lifted off he should be rejoicing and yet what do we see this guy do we see him walk out the door and he's walking down the street and he sees another man who owes him money and the guy owes him a lot of money don't get me wrong the guy owes him a lot of money but it is nothing in comparison to what he has just been forgiven and he grabs the man by the throat and he says, pay me everything you owe me and rather than interact with that man in the mercy that he had just been shown. Rather than interact with that man the joy that he should be experiencing because of the debt that he had been forgiven. Rather, he interacts that with that man with judgment and evil thoughts. And the man looks at him and says, hey man, just spare me. I'm going to pay you back everything I owe you, which was possible. It would have taken a lot, but it was possible. Just give me time. And the guy says, nope, and he throws him into jail. Which I never understood, debtor's jail, because like, how can they earn money if they're there? But he throws him into jail, and the master hears about this, and he's concerned, and he says there at the end of eighteen, and the ma- and <clears throat> he says there in, at the end of eighteen, verse thirty-two. He says, then his master summoned him and told him, "You wicked servant, you forgave I forgave you all that debt." because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his ang- in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The same is true if we choose not to bestow mercy and to withhold forgiveness to withhold love to withhold compassion from those that we come into contact with who were just like us but by the grace of God we would be in the same position that they are in but by the grace of God we would be experiencing the difficulties that they are but when we choose to withhold compassion to withhold mercy from those we come into contact with then we too are denying what has been done for us. I don't know I don't know where this message hits you. I don't know this morning what you are dealing with. I don't know your heart and this is a very personal issue. This is a heart issue that no one can look into you and say, "Oh, you have a problem with partiality" or "Oh, you have a problem with prejudice, I can't do that in your life. But the word of God has the ability to strike us right where we're at. So this morning I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. I'm just going to ask for you to respond. How has God spoken to you this morning? Maybe you need to confess partiality or favoritism in your heart. Maybe you need to make a commitment to be a part of a ministry or to reach out to someone that you come into contact with on a regular basis that you have been avoiding because it may not benefit you directly. Maybe you just need to pray for us as a church that we would seek new and different ways to reach out. We do some great things here, and we're going to continue to do those, and I would never trivialize those ministries that we're already a part of but there are other things that we can be doing to reach those people that we have never reached before but we don't know what that looks like maybe you just need to pray for us this morning in that but don't do that and so be like those pastors who said yeah you go do that we'll pray for you you have fun with that we love you no you pray for it knowing that god very well may call you into that as well he desires you to be a part of that reaching out as well. Maybe this morning we've set this up the last couple of weeks. Maybe this morning you need to come to the altar. If you just need to come, you and God, this side of the altar is for you where you can have a private moment, just you and Him. Maybe you need to come this morning and have someone pray with you or just have someone put a hand on your shoulder to let you know that they're with you, that we as a church love you. And this side of the altar, we invite you to come join with you in that. Allow us to be the body of Christ with you. You do that in these next few moments. Let me pray with you, and then we'll have a time of response. Father, we just come before you this morning, and God, if I'm honest before you, this has to be one of the most uncomfortable things that you have convicted me about. This has to be one of the most uncomfortable things for us to admit to. Because none of us wants to say, oh, I show favoritism. None of us wants to say, oh, I have a prejudice or, oh, I don't associate with that person or these people because of this or that. None of us wants to do that, Lord. And yet your word, your word puts it right there in front of us and asks us the question, forces us to look at our own hearts, for me to look at my own heart and ask whether that has creeped into who I am. So, Lord, I pray and I beg, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive us as a church if we have in any way shown favoritism or partiality in the way that we represent you, in the way that we act as believers. Lord, help us to run from that. Lord, help us to open our arms wide to any, Lord, that you may put in our path. Lord, help us to use wisdom that can only come for you and how we deal with those situations and how we approach those things. Lord, help us in all ways show compassion and mercy and grace because you have first done that for us.